This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. First Timothy chapter one and verse 15. Brother Nathan prayed correctly that you have heard these things before. I doubt we can hear them too many times. I know our hearts grow cold and we forget our love of Jesus Christ Himself. And we get distracted not only with the things of this life, but we can even be distracted in the Word of God that we forget the central theme and the central person of the Word of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus told the greatest lovers of the printed page, the Pharisees, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. John chapter 5 and verse 39. The Scriptures in the Old Testament was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might learn of Him and come and sit at His feet. We want to be like Mary and hear and think everything that we can about Jesus Christ today and not be cumbered about with much care. I hope that your hearts can be lifted up in the Lord Jesus Christ today. This is simple. I don't care how long I take. I'm not going to take long per sermon. I don't care how long. I want to go over some of the simple facts of the gospel to make sure our children are well established in them. To make sure that some that sit among us who have not heard these things very many times can hear them and understand them and be grounded in them. And for those of us who've heard them many times, might have our love of those things renewed. That's my purpose. Let me say something that I hope we can say many times again. And I hope that we'll understand it well. Though it's not a very pleasant statement to most religionists and so-called Christians today. Jesus did not try, and Jesus is not trying, to save anyone. Two billion Christians think that God and Christ and the Holy Spirit are trying to save. We reject their pitiful theology and soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, to believe that This is the faithful saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Not to try to save. Not to offer salvation, but to save. Jesus did not try, and He is not trying to save anyone. He will save to the uttermost. Because He is able to save to the uttermost according to the Word of God. And according to the passages of Scripture we've had read already, The word glorification can be used in its past tense because as far as God's concerned and the reality of things, they're already glorified. Romans chapter 8 has been read to us, verses 28 through 39. And anyone listening to this sermon by way of the internet or any other medium, Romans 8, 28 through 39, and Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 are two good passages of Scripture to consider before listening any further. We have recently studied Ecclesiastes, where death is a great enemy. We need a Savior from death. And there is one. Solomon didn't tell us about him in Ecclesiastes, but our brother Paul sure did. And we had those two passages read to us. They're better than Ecclesiastes. Oh yeah. That's why the New Testament is called a better covenant than the things of Ecclesiastes and the Old Covenant. We enjoyed Ecclesiastes, and it has great wisdom and truth for us. But we want the New Testament telling us of a Savior. We have studied that we ought to be living epistles of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to let our light shine in this world. We ought to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And it's time that we looked at that Savior. And it's time that we looked at that doctrine so we can know what we're adorning by our good works. And so we come to this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I hope that not for 
the flesh, either in saying or doing. That there might be a few shouting Baptists among us today. They have something on us. They have shaken off all of Babel's garments. Because one of Babel's garments is that you're supposed to sit, staid, and silent during the worship of God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 assumed that men said and women said, Amen, in the house of God. At the hearing of a blessing or the hearing of truth. And his purpose in 1 Corinthians 14 by raising it was when he was dealing with the subject of speaking in foreign languages, what the Bible calls unknown tongues, is that the poor unlearned in the assembly that didn't know that language wouldn't know when to say amen. Because he assumed they were saying it a lot. But if you were speaking in Russian or Portuguese, they wouldn't know when to say amen. That's what it's in 1 Corinthians 14 for. That's right. So if you, if you get loud enough that I have to get a little bit louder, I'm not going to complain. When there's too many of you saying too many amens and running around the assembly so that it's all broken up in disorder and you look like barbarians, I will call you down that we've gone too far. Amen. But push me toward it. Amen. It's too good. Yes. It's too good. The world wants you to get excited and jump and shout and clap your hands and cheer. They have cheerleaders for the most ridiculous of activities. Chasing a little weird-shaped spheroid, whatever you want to call that thing, up and down a field. Kicking it and it never goes straight and it never goes where you want it to. But we can rejoice in God our Savior. You want to talk about strength? You think there's a, you think there's a power ranking of the NFL teams? How about the power ranking of the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. You know where His rank is? He's above all. Amen. And we should rejoice in Him. In Hebrews chapter 9, let us remind ourselves why we need a Savior. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He's coming back and He's not bringing our sins with Him because He paid for them on the cross of Calvary when He came the first time. It It is appointed unto men once to die. As in Adam, all die. For those of you listening... The audience hearing this sermon read in preparation last evening, Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 5, you brethren were able to be reminded that wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, which I just quoted to you, does not mean that you have all sinned actively. Your sins are not in Romans chapter 5. Only one sin is in Romans chapter 5. It is the sin of Adam, and it is by that one sin that we are all sinners and that we have all sinned. Every single one of us ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil through our perfect representative Adam. Don't you dare think for one second that that is not a fair arrangement because Adam is your superior by a million times. He had but one commandment to keep in a perfect world with a perfect wife, with God as his personal friend, and he could do anything else and eat off of every other tree of the garden. He did not have a sin nature. He is one million times your superior. And in Him we sin because God set Him up by appointment to be our representative. And so it is appointed unto men once to die. Because God told Adam, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And Adam died and continued to die and died physically, and he's going to die the second death unless Jesus Christ saved him. And so it is appointed unto men once to die. That's physical death, body death. Then, 
After that comes the judgment. And you know what that judgment involves? The second death. Revelation chapter 20 tells us, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We're in trouble. We're dying. And we're going to die. It is appointed unto us to die. Because our Father got us in this mess. You think your Father on earth has got you into some little mess? He hasn't done anything compared to you, compared to your first father. Compared to your first father. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. But so, in the same way, speaking of once to die, Jesus Christ once offered to bear the sins of many. Was once offered. God offered Him as a sacrifice to Himself. Jesus Christ came up into heaven and offered Himself without spot to God. Hebrews chapter 9 has just told any reader of the book of Hebrews that before you get to verses 27 and 28. It's in verse 12. And it's in verse 14 where he offered himself without spot to God. Because God offered Jesus Christ as a sacrifice on our behalf to bear the sins of many. And if you look for him, it's the evidence that you're one of God's elect and that Jesus Christ died for you and he's coming again without your sins unto salvation. Eternal life and an eternal inheritance forever if you're looking for Him. Throughout the Bible, there are statements given that are not conditions for obtaining eternal life. They are not instruments or means by which you obligate God to give you eternal life, but they are descriptive statements of the character and the evidence of those that have eternal life. And there's, there's hundreds of verses like this one that tell us you don't earn eternal life by looking for Him. You don't put God under obligation or debt to give you eternal life by looking for Him. But it's those that are looking for Him that He's coming for. Because those that are looking for Him show they have a changed nature. Because without the saving grace of God, all we look for is the next paycheck, the next promotion, the next woman, the next child, the next hobby, the next whatever, the next workout. The next job, instead of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, every one of these verses we look at, there's always so much to gather from them. And we could preach from each one, looking at each word. We want to see that we were appointed to death. We want to remember that Adam got us in the trouble. But we also want to remember that the evidence of eternal life is looking for Him. Are you looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to remind ourselves of it daily. Our flesh is weak. Jesus understood that. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And every day the flesh wants to drag us down with looking for the next customer to call on. The next event in our lives, the next activity, those things are unimportant compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be looking for His coming because He's coming for them. You know, the Thessalonians, it tells us in First Thessalonians chapter 1, that they had turned from their idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son, Jesus, from heaven. And do you know what it says in that chapter about them? Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Amen. Because they were looking for Jesus from heaven. Right. The devil is not looking for Jesus from heaven. It's going to be a sorry day for the devil when Jesus comes from heaven. The world is not looking for Jesus from heaven. The world ignores our Savior Jesus Christ. The flesh doesn't want anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Then who will help us remember that we ought to be looking for Jesus from heaven? The Word of God, one another, and the Holy Spirit of God. It's the blessed hope of the believer. And we need to lay hold of it and remind each other of it. Brethren, there's more than one Jesus in this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1-4, through 4, the Apostle Paul was jealous with a godly jealousy over the Corinthian church. He wanted to present them as a chaste virgin to Christ, pure from false doctrine. But he was afraid in their weakness that if another man came along preaching another Jesus with another spirit and another gospel, that they might well bear with that false teacher. That's what the first four verses of 2 Corinthians 11 teach. Because there is another Jesus, and there is another Spirit, and there is another Gospel. And we want to lay hold of the one Gospel of the Bible, 
And the one Lord Jesus Christ taught by that gospel and the one Holy Spirit sent down from heaven that bears witness of that one Lord Jesus Christ. We do not want to be waylaid at all from the truth of the gospel. There is a faithful and acceptable saying, and that is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And we understand by comparing that with the rest of the New Testament, He saved everyone that God sent Him to save. Everyone. He will not lose one of them. He will present them all to God. And by faith, we believe that we are in that number by the faith and love and works that He has put in our hearts. And so daily, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, which He worked into us. And that's how we know that we are God's elect. Most so-called Christians today believe Jesus only made salvation possible by your faith and your obedience. He didn't come to save. He came to make salvation possible for you to get saved and for you to save yourselves. They say, God loves all men equally without exception. Jesus Christ died for all the sins of all men without exception. And the Holy Spirit is convicting all men without exception. And therefore, the rest is up to you to cooperate and help God get saved. That's what they all teach. It doesn't matter whether it's the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. It doesn't matter whether it's the altered sacraments of the Greek Catholic Church. It doesn't matter whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons that require baptism in order to be saved. It doesn't matter whether it's the Lutherans or the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians or the Methodists that believe in some form or fashion of baptismal regeneration. It doesn't matter whether it's an Arminian Baptist church or the fundamentalists of our city that believe you have to invite Jesus into your heart and accept Him as your Savior in order for that love, death, and conviction to ever bear any fruit in your life. It's all laid upon the man to save himself. And the difference between heaven and hell turns out to be not the work of Christ on the cross, not the love of God or the, His great will in the matter of salvation, nor the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, but it turns out to be the exercise of the human will. And so they worship at the altar of free will. That every man has a free will, they say, and he needs to exercise that free will in order to make it to heaven. So those in hell are loved just as much by the God of heaven. Those in hell had their sins paid for as thoroughly and as fully as... Those in heaven. Those in hell had the Holy Spirit convicting them and leading them and drawing them as much as those in heaven. So the only difference between the two categories is what the sinner himself did. His words. His baptism. His sacraments. I don't care what you make it. You can make it inviting Jesus into your heart or you can make it eating a little round wafer in the Roman Catholic Church called the host, that they say is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. In either case, you're a sacramentalist. The sacrament is either faith in inviting Jesus into your heart, or it's eating that Mass. It's the same. You are obligating God to save you by something you have done, and the work of God is reduced in salvation until it's you the one that, you're the one that made the difference between those in hell and those in heaven. And if that's the case, then you would get the glory in heaven because God did just as much for the ones in hell. If that's the case, the ones in hell could sing the song of the redeemed as much as the ones in heaven. It's a disgrace to the Lord Jesus Christ to think that He came and wasted His efforts on the cross and that God's love is so weak and pitiful that it couldn't win its object. A man's able to do that. The Bible says there's four wonders in the world. And the fourth wonder of the world is the way of a man with a maid. A man's able to win the object of his love. It's easy to seduce a woman. A man knows that. That's why you're, most of you are married. Okay, haven't you figured that out? Poor, the poor thing sitting next to you, she went down like a sack of flour. Yes. Amen. I heard that back there. But the Lord, but, but God can't win the object of His love? Are you kidding me? Right. You say, well, if he, were to, if he were to love me that strong so that I loved Him back, then, then He'd be forcing me against my will. Isn't that exactly what you men do when you seduce a woman? Right. I don't really want to get married right now. I don't know if you're the one. So you bring her flowers the next time. And you write her another note. And pretty soon you're the one. 
Now, why can't God do that with a sinner? I'll tell you, He can do it. And He did do it. And it's the only reason that I love God this morning. is because He did do it. The Bible says He drew me with the cords of a man. He drew me with the cords of love. He drew me. No man cometh unto unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And God's done that. That's John 6.44. And because they didn't get it the first time, He said it again in John 6.65. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And when God draws, you come. He opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended unto the things that were spoken by Paul. The seller of purple from the city of Thyatira in Philippi on business heard... Paul, preaching by a riverside where prayer was wanted to be made in that city. The Lord opened her heart. She wanted to be baptized right then. As soon as she came up out of the water, she said, Brethren, I don't want you to go anywhere else. Come and stay at my house. I, I, want, I want to hear more about this. What made that change? It was the power of a God that loved her and a Christ that died for her and the Holy Spirit that moved upon the face of the waters in Genesis chapter 1 that moved upon her heart and opened it to the things of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have God's love and Christ's work and the Holy Spirit's power, there is no evangelistic method by which you can convert or persuade any man. The Lord Jesus Christ told the rich man in hell in Luke chapter 16, that if his brothers would not listen to Moses and the prophets being read and preached every Sabbath day in the synagogue, then it wouldn't matter if one rose from the dead and came back and preached to them. They would not be persuaded. If you've been persuaded to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the High King of Heaven, and that you want to obey Him with your life and you want to be baptized in His name, it's because God's persuaded you. He's loved you and drawn you to love Him. If He were to lift up His grace just a little bit, every single one of us could rush into the most heinous sins. You can imagine the sins right now you'd say, I'd never, I'd never commit. You would commit them with gleeful abandon if it weren't for the grace of God. He draws us, He keeps us. When a man knows the power of God correctly, he prays like David prayed, incline my heart unto Thy commandments, O Lord. Make me go in the way of Thy precepts. Do not incline my heart toward covetousness, but away from it and toward Thee. Unite my heart to fear Thy name. That's how we praise. That's how we want to pray. It is believed that God through Christ is trying, and I want to work that word over, that God through Christ is trying to save all men if they would cooperate with Him. But alas, not enough missionaries cooperate, so most of the world's never heard about Jesus. But alas, where the missionaries do go, they don't bring enough clothes and food with them, so most people don't believe. He knows. So alas, the, the love of God, the death of Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit is for the most part of the human race a wasted effort. And they end up separated from God forever in eternal torment. And yet God loved them. The love of the God I know is not like that at all. He could never let anyone that He loves go to hell. There's no man in here that would do it. How in the world can the God of heaven do it? Do you know what they say? They say, I can't believe the kind of God you're preaching. That He wouldn't love all men. I say back to them, What kind of love are you talking about when the vast majority of those that he loves end up in hell? I want to talk about a love that's real. A love that saves. A love that does everything necessary to bring me to him. And the Bible tells me that that's what God does. And And Jesus Christ will present me faultless before his throne with exceeding great joy. And tell the Father, behold, I am the children which thou hast given me. And I want you to delight in those words. You're going to hear them again today from Hebrews chapter 2. A famous so-called evangelist has said, God has done all that He can do, so now it's up to you. God has done all that He can do. Poor Mark, this Roman Catholic over here who never heard anything about the gospel in a Catholic church except what kind of incense ought to be burned at what time. He doesn't know those things, but the rest of us do. 
And we know who I'm talking about. The Reverend Billy Graham, they call him. But I read in the Bible that holy and reverend is the name of my God in heaven. And not Billy Graham. God has done all that he can do, so now it's up to you. Some say or some think that God's going to be grieving through eternity. Because so many that he loved and so many that Christ died for and so many that the Holy Spirit tried to woo end up in eternal hell. If they don't think this, then they're inconsistent and their theology is a farce. For they claim equal efforts for those in heaven and those in hell. And if, if God put forth his infinite love toward those in hell, then he ought to be grieving. Because he's tormenting them forever and ever with the devil and his angels. And he loved them with infinite love. Of the infinite God? That is impossible. And for Him to love them and then stop loving them is impossible. He said He put upon those that He loved an everlasting love. It's impossible. So here we sit, a small assembly, differing from 99.99% of organized so-called Christianity. Because we're going to follow the Word of God and believe the faithful saying that's worthy of our acceptation. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and He said that He would not lose one of them when He came. John chapter 6 and verse 38. Many sing Jesus saves, but we're the only ones that know it. Many sing, O bliss of the purified, that Jesus is mighty to save, but we believe it. Jesus isn't hoping to save any. He's not a mere observer wondering who's going to discover His grace and cooperate with Him to get themselves out of a mess. Jesus isn't trying to save. If Jesus came to save all men, all men would be saved. Who in the world could hinder the Lord Jesus Christ? He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Do you think someone's not going to get saved if He came to save all men? Well, he came, he didn't want to violate their free will. He better violate their free will because their free will is bound up in sin and they are slaves to sin, which the Bible teaches over and over. They are dead in trespasses and sins. They don't need a medicine. What are you going to do with a man in a casket? Pour it down his throat? It's too late. He needs resurrection. He needs regeneration. He needs a new creation. And this is what the Bible teaches us. Every Bible verse requires a right sense. They read in the book and the law of God distinctly, Nehemiah chapter 8, 8 tells us, and they gave the sense. We're to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of truth is to be divided. There may be verses that look like works are a condition. There may be verses that look like baptism is a condition. There may be verses that look like faith is a condition. But we put all of them in their proper sense and we understand that God chose to save a group of people called His elect sheep children. And Jesus Christ came and paid the legal penalty for all of them. And the Holy Spirit regenerates them in time. And God will glorify every single one of them in heaven and give them the eternal inheritance that has been prepared for them specifically from the foundation of the world. Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. And in the process of time, by God's grace, He sends men with beautiful feet to preach the gospel of peace unto them and to tell them what God has done for them. So that they can lay hold of that in their life and rejoice in God their Savior and look for His Son from heaven. And so we have that fourth phase of the practical phase of salvation that we have tried to learn and is so helpful to us by the grace and mercy of God to know the wisdom and prudence of His will, which He has made known to us according to Ephesians chapter 1. Do you know that you may be beneficiaries of Ephesians 1 more than most? Mm -hmm. Because He's made known to you the mystery of His will. It's good news. That's very, very kind. Thank you, blessed God. Let's open the precious inspired pages of the Bible and review the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. All we know about salvation is right here. We do not get it from popes or teachers or leaders or prophets. We get it from the Word of God only. Therefore, though we may be in a very small minority, we rest our case on the written words of Scripture. It's a little frightening at times to be in such a small minority. 
But we must remind ourselves that so was Noah. But would you be more afraid to be in the ark or outside the ark? I'd rather be in it. God said, it's going to rain. He'd never seen a drop. Build a big boat with a top. And he did. The church was made up of eight souls. Seven of them may have been carnal Christians. Because the Bible only tells us that Noah had faith. That's a small church. Don't ever worry about being small. Oh, do you, you want another verse? How about Zechariah chapter 4? Listen to these words. Zechariah was a prophet God raised up to encourage Zerubbabel, who was the governor of the 45,000 Jews that came back from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem. And as they stood there at that mountain of rubble, Zerubbabel was told by Zechariah, Who hath despised the day of small things? You feel small right now, Zerubbabel, before this great mountain of rubble? To have to clean all this mess up after it's been sitting here for 70 years and build streets and an infrastructure and raise up a temple to the glory of God? Who hath despised the day of small things? Before my spirit, this mountain shall become a plain. And the headstone will be laid with shoutings. Grace! Grace unto it. Zechariah chapter 4. Then you hear the words that were in a prayer uttered this morning, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's Zechariah 4, 6 and 7. Get excited about those words. Who hath despised the day of small things? How many were in the upper room? How many were gathered for prayer in the city of Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost? What was the effect of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the Jews? We read of 120 souls. How many were in Israel when the nation numbered millions in the days of Ahab and Jezebel? God had reserved His 7,000. Oh, let's not be moved by numbers. Let's not be moved by the fact that we're a minority. Let's thank God that we're in the minority. Let's thank God that we're in the boat. Let's thank God we're in the ark. Let's thank God that we love the Scriptures. Let's thank God that He's shown us His Scriptures. And let's believe them. Let's be very simple. I want our children to know these things. I want those who haven't heard them to know them, to be able to defend them. But let's refute this pitiful doctrine of salvation that the rest of the world teaches and prove that Jesus is not trying to save anyone. He came to save, and He will save, has saved, and will save to the uttermost by His own ability. There's plenty of material to go way past this. If you think this isn't deep enough for you, come and tell me which point isn't deep enough for you, and I'll give you lots to go work on in your spare time. What we fail at is not knowing more. We fail at not loving what we know and putting it all into practice. That's where we fail the most. We don't need more to be held accountable for more. We need to be responsible for what He's shown us. We need to be reminded. Peter said, as long as I am in this tabernacle, meaning His physical body, I'm going to stir your pure minds up by way of remembrance that you will not forget these things. It is the love of Christ that is the highest and greatest motivation for a person on earth. It's the love of Christ that makes a better husband, a better wife, a better child, a better nurse, a better master. It's the love of Christ. Paul said the love of Christ constraineth us. It grips us and holds us tight and presses us in one direction. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. We want to stir that up. Lord, stir it up in us. Send your Holy Spirit and remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would love Him more. We get so distracted with other things. And He must be the central figure in our church, in our souls, in our lives. Salvation is not by God trying to save us. Jesus is not trying to save anyone because there's a plan described in the Bible. God had a plan. And so let's look at Hebrews 13 and remind ourselves of this plan. The plan was to save. The plan was not to try to save. The plan was not to offer salvation. The plan was to save. So by the fact that there was a plan to save, 
we know that it wasn't trying to save. Jesus didn't come to try to save. Jesus came to put the plan into force by the payment of the price that needed to be made for the plan to take effect. And the plan is called the everlasting covenant. Amen. And for those of you that read 2 Samuel 23, 1-7 and Hebrews 13 and Psalm 89, you read about that everlasting covenant last night. Before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve, you know, the Armenians are so incredibly simplistic. And I don't mean that in a flattering way, like the Bible says, lest you be removed from the simplicity that is in Christ. They're so simplistic in a sense of ignorance. Right. The way they preach and the way they talk is that God was surprised by the Garden of Eden and had to work up a remedy. But the Bible tells us He had already purposed who He was going to save before He made the first father and mother. He was already preparing a place for them before He had made the first father and mother. He had already set the Lord Jesus Christ up as their mediator before their first father and mother. By way of covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth was not yet there, but He was there in the person of the Word of God. And by covenant, He would take upon Himself a body in the fullness of time and lay down His life for those people. Before the world began. See? on this, Let's take this as a particular point. You want to hear more about what happened before the world began? Then why don't you go to our website, click sermons, click all sermons, and click before the foundation of the world. And you can see a whole sermon, listen to it, read the outline of everything God did for us before the foundation of the world. But I have to run over it right now. But there was so much done because there was a plan. Look at Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Those two verses could be preached for an hour. Because the clauses of those two verses are so full of precious truth. Look at them. I can't. The God of peace. He is a God of war. He is the Lord of hosts. The only way He can be the God of peace is because He set up the Lord Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace between us and Him. He, He is never at peace with His enemies. He is never at peace with sinners or sin. But He's the God of peace. Because the Lord Jesus Christ made peace. Do you think He's going to be called the God of peace in the day of judgment? Do you think there's going to be peace to the wicked? I thought the Bible said... Let me see. There. Thank you. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. That's what it says. But how's He the God of peace? Because it's all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know how, do you know how to read the Bible? Do you know how to sit in a quiet chair and read two verses and fall in love again with the Lord Jesus Christ? Forget reading the whole Bible. If that distracts you, read those two verses this afternoon. Read them a second time. Read them backwards so that you have to slow down for each clause. Not Not each word backwards, but each clause. Read each clause and delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have failed you if I don't teach you how to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn on some music about the Lord Jesus Christ. Sing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Read this again, a third time, a thirtieth time. Now the God of peace. And think about, how is He the... Oh, He is the God of peace. Thank you, God. Did you see in Romans 5 last night, verse 11 said, by whom we have received the atonement. What does atonement mean? At one again. Peace has been made. God and we are at one again. It's also called, when you get estranged parties back together again, it's called reconciliation. God was in Christ and hath reconciled us to Himself. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 5. 
and hath given to us, this is Paul, hath given to us the word of reconciliation. All Paul ran around this world doing was telling people, you've been reconciled by God. Now why don't you get reconciled in your own heart by knowing he's the God of peace? Because until you hear it, do you know what you think he is? He's the God of eternal power and Godhead that you realize from his creation. But when you hear the gospel of reconciliation, he's the God of peace. That brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Do you think he tried to bring him again from the dead? Well, what if he did it against his will? He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Esther, is he the shepherd of the goats? He's the shepherd of the sheep. Don't you forget it where you go and hear bad theology. Right. He's the shepherd of the sheep. Right. Isn't Jesus Christ going to put all the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand? Yes. He's right. the great shepherd of the sheep. Yes. He will not lose one of his sheep. Right. He doesn't care about the goats. They already made their choice. And we made our choice with them. That's right. That we didn't want him. But thank God he didn't believe in free will. Amen. Except his own. Right. Because that brother that read to us Ephesians chapter 1, yes. 3 through 14, I almost wanted to say that it was redundant. <laughs> because it wanted to keep mentioning the will of God. Amen. According to the good pleasure of yes. his will. Amen. Yes. That's free will. Amen. He freely showed his will Toward us. Do you know what Jesus said? Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. He did not praise those babes for seeing things that the wise and prudent couldn't. He blessed the God of heaven that hid the things from the ones that should have been able to see them and gave them to the ones that shouldn't have been able to see them. Right. Are you able to yes. understand that? Amen. It's His will. And His will is free. And He exercised it toward us and not toward the fallen angels. Right. So you want to praise His will. Amen. The glory of His will. The good pleasure of His will. For so it seemed good in thy sight. Is what the Bible says. That great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Not through the faith of the everlasting covenant. Not through the baptism of the everlasting covenant. Not through the good works of the everlasting covenant. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant went into force by blood. Do you need my help in remembering what a covenant is? The last will and testament of Almighty God. How much does he have to give away? How do we, t- how do we say it? All his riches and glory to give to his children. How does he give them away? How does any father give his assets to a child? By his last will and testament, otherwise known as a covenant. Called a testament in scripture. Do you know what the first 39 books of your Bible are called? I'm, I'm trying to help you. The old what? Testament. Okay, good. And everything under the Old Testament was put into force by the shedding of how many times? Once? Ten? Thousand? Ten million? One trillion? In Old Testament. One trillion? How many? Every day. Every morning. Every evening. Every sin. Every service. Every new moon. Every sin. On and on. All those. All the blood. You gotta read Hebrews 9. It, it's all about that. All those things were sanctified by blood. And so it says, Jesus followed that pattern because that pattern was to show Jesus. And he shed his blood once through the blood of the everlasting covenant. That's what put it into force. If a loving father sits down, a very rich loving father, that's the best of both worlds, isn't it? A loving father is a good thing. A rich father is an okay thing. Well, that's a good thing. A loving rich father is a very good thing. A very rich loving father sits down and writes a will. When do you get all his stuff? And I, speak, I say it respectfully. When he dies. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. What put the everlasting covenant in force? Do you know when it was made? It's called the everlasting covenant. 
before the foundation of the world, the beneficiaries were already written in the covenant. The covenant is called in the book of Revelation the, where the beneficiaries are listed. The book of life. The book of life. That's the book of the everlasting covenant. That's the list of the beneficiaries. I want my assets transferred to these parties. My righteousness goes to these parties. This declaration is to be made at the day of judgment based upon my death. Can I prove that from a Bible? Does the Bible say that Jesus was foreordained to die for us before the foundation of the world? Yes. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Were we put in Jesus Christ and assigned to Him to die for us and put that covenant into force? Yes. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. When was the eternal inheritance prepared for us, according to Matthew 25, 34? Before the foundation of the world. Jesus had to die. So we're looking at this one text and delighting in it and wanting to just lay hold of every word in it. Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And if you really want to sort and rank the words of Scripture, you want the ones that talk about Jesus Christ the most directly. Right. You want me to prove it? What I just You all know this, but let's look at it again. Turn back three pages in an Oxford wide-margin Bible. Back to Hebrews chapter 9. How are we saved? Does he try to save us? Does a father try to give his assets away? A father gives his assets away by the legal, formal document of a last will and testament where he says, upon my death I am no longer the owner of these things. They belong to so-and-so. You say, well, what if a person doesn't want them? They still have them anyway. Right. Still in their possession. doesn't matter. Still in their possession. Anybody can go into court and find out who does this piece of real estate belong to? And they look it up. Lo and behold, it belongs to that person that was assigned that real estate by the father that died. The fact that they want to live in ignorance is just stupidity on their part, but that piece of property is still theirs. God does a whole lot better than we can do when we sign a last will and testament because He can send His Holy Spirit to go into our hearts and take us on a tour of that piece of property so that we walk over those 440 acres of forest-covered hills with sheep and cattle and beautiful Arabian horses. And we say, thank you, Father. But we, that was for you. Thank you, Father, for being so kind to us. He puts it in our hearts. Amen. He opened the heart of Lydia. So, Wow! That's what Lydia thought. She said it in the language of Philippi. That was Greek. Look at this. Last will and testament. Verse oh, 14. 13. I want to read the whole chapter. Do you know what, the, you know what Hebrews 9 is? Do you know your Bible? Hebrews 9. First 10 verses list, in brief, the services and the furniture of the Old Testament Because Paul is making a comparison for the sake of Jews. We got something a whole lot better under the New Testament. But he lists their stuff of the Old Testament that they got excited about. You know how big that Ark of the Covenant was? It was four and a half feet long. Little dinky box. Do you know how big heaven is? I can't. Little Ark. And so Paul lists it. You know what was in the Ark? And so he tells them what was in the Ark. There was a tabernacle, first compartment. You went through it. You went into the second compartment called the holiest of all. It had a golden candlestick. It had a censer where they would offer incense. Paul's listing this furniture and stuff of the Old Testament. And he gets down through verse 9. He said, all that stood in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them. God forced the Jews to worship this way for 2,000 years. That's what he's That's what he's telling them. Verse 11. So we come to verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, better things than that of the Old Testament, 2,000 years of vain religion that was just a shadow of the reality that was coming. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, better than the blue tent that Moses made. By a greater tabernacle. What is it? It's heaven. 
Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Neither. So first, isn't this good? Amen. We got a better house. It's the house in heaven. Better than that blue tent on earth. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. When the, when the high priest went into the holy place, how many times a day could he go in? How many times a day could the high priest go into the holy place? That tabernacle had an outer court where there was an altar where the fire and the smoke could ascend up to heaven. Then you went in the first doorway and you were in this tent. You were in the first two-thirds of it. The priest could go in there every day because on a table of showbread, they would put the loaves of showbread and there was a candlestick in there. And then they could go into the holiest of all, which was a little compartment at the end. How many times a day? Once a year. He could only go in there once a year. And every year that they went in, they would have to sacrifice all the sins of all the people and put a little bit of a blood of a bullock in there and send a scapegoat off into the wilderness. But guess what they had to do one year hence? Do the same thing all over again because in those sacrifices, there was simply a remembrance made of sins. Every year for 2,000 years, that form of religion was imposed upon them until Christ came. And it's called the time of Reformation when John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles turned the world upside down, spiritually speaking and religiously speaking, by instituting the New Testament. No longer were animal sacrifices needed because of these words right here. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come. Those weren't good things. Those were carnal ordinances imposed on them. A schoolmaster. Learn this. Learn this. Learn this. Learn this. And you know when you got your summer vacation? 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years after Moses. You finally got out of school. And you graduated to the New Testament. We are blessed, brethren. Amen. Do you... The Holy Spirit has to make you love it. I said, make you love it. Because there's nothing in us that loves it. Jesus Christ is the greatest divider and the greatest, the greatest divider of men that has ever been put forth on earth. You know, when you watch an athlete on television, they thank God for making them great. That doesn't mean anything. Wait for the ones that mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And make sure you remember what I just said whenever you speak in public and anything is mentioned religiously. God doesn't, God is too vague because they consider Allah God, but they don't consider Jesus Christ Muhammad. So when you say the Lord Jesus Christ, you're identifying yourself as a Christian. Right. Buddha's a God. Vishnu's a God. The great spirit's a God. Our God has a name. And if you want to use his name, go ahead. You can speak about Jehovah and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. That gets a little more specific, doesn't it? Well, let me tell you this. Let me ask you. Doesn't that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? Think about speaking in front of other people or saying something to someone. If you were to get that specific, does it make you a little bit less comfortable than just talking about the Lord did this and the Lord did that? And See, they consider Allah Lord. Baal's Lord. in In Baal worship. Right. The Lord Jesus Christ. We have come to Him in the New Testament. Verse 12 told us that it's not by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once. He isn't trying to obtain eternal redemption. He entered in one time because that one time was good enough, just like the high priest only had to go in one time a year to deliver the whole nation for the next year. Jesus Christ went in there one time and delivered us forever, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Does that sound like he's trying to get people eternally redeemed? Or did he obtain eternal redemption for us? He obtained it. Amen. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, I mean, if there was some outward ceremonial benefit from all that ashes and stuff of the Old Testament, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you, if you could remain, Jews, you Christian Hebrews, 
Christian Hebrews that have, that have believed on Jesus Christ and been baptized but are tempted to go back into Old Testament worship with all of your relatives back there in Jerusalem. Jews, if, if you could be loyal to a system of religion that involved sprinkling you with the ashes of a heifer, please understand the comparison is so powerful. How much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you could go on year after year with the ashes of a heifer, how far can you go with the blood of Jesus Christ? And in the middle of that verse, it tells us where salvation was offered. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Jesus offered himself to God. And do you know what Revelation 5 tells me? And you're going to have this read to you later today. That when Jesus Christ arrived in heaven... He could walk up to him that sat on the throne and take out of his right hand the book that he held in his hand. He was accepted in heaven. John wept because no man was found that could open that book. And he was warned, don't weep. The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the book. He was accepted. And when John turned around and saw the lion of the tribe of Judah... He had the appearance of a, a lamb slain. Right. And it's called the book of life of the lamb slain. Because that's what was in the right hand of God. On the outside of that book were seven seals. And as they were ripped off, God's judgments on the enemies of the beneficiaries inside that book, his people. When that book was taken out of the hand of God and put into the possession of its owner, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, three choirs in succession burst forth in praising God. And who gave the amen? The four beasts in verse 14. That is Revelation 5. We're going to have it read to us when we come back after our break. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. I went back to Hebrews 9 to work toward verses I haven't got to yet. So give me one or two more minutes. Verse 15. Jesus offered himself without spot to God, and God accepted him. And when God accepted him, guess who else he accepted? God accepted us. Because we were made accepted in the Beloved. Who is the beloved? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What reward did he get? At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16. What reward did he get? Sit Sit down in my throne here at my right hand and rule over your enemies. What did he get? He was promoted as a man above all the angelic host, good and evil. There is a man in heaven with a physical body whose physical body is limited in space to one place like ours, except it's glorified. Jesus Christ is in heaven. That body is going to split this atmosphere and he is going to utter a voice of a shout and the, and the, the angel with him and call every dead body up out of the ground. That is our Savior. He is a man. He is a man, but he's the Word of God in a man's body. Don't ever mistake me when I say that. But you know what? I fear that Jesus Christ is a nebulous concept to most Christians. He is a real man right now. And angels have to report to him. And the Bible wants to state that over and over again. I want to tell you something about The devil himself, he has to report to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ cast him out of heaven with the means of Michael the archangel. Revelation chapter 12 tells me, Jesus said in John chapter 12, Now shall the Son of Man be lifted up. Now is the judgment of the devil, and he'll be cast out in John 12, 31. Paul said about Jesus in Colossians chapter 2, that Jesus made an open show of the devil, triumphing over them in the cross. Amen. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. That's why when you read Acts 19, and that 
exorcist came in, they said, we know Jesus and we know Paul. Who in the world are you? They know who Jesus is. Jesus offered himself without spot to God. God accepted him and God accepted us in him. That made us accepted in the beloved according to his predestinating purpose in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Hebrews 9, 15. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. And brethren, we believe in salvation by means. We believe in salvation by means. That there is a means in, in accomplishing salvation. We do believe that. Because the next verse tells us so. Do you know where to go with all these verses? If I was to say to you, where's the verse that teaches that salvation is by means? Do you know where to go in the Bible? It's right here, verse 15. You're going to like it. You know, they've got the means of seven sacraments. You know how long they had to work to do that? It took them, took them 500 years of anti-Nicene fathers, Nicene fathers, and post-Nicene fathers, all of which contradicted each other, and all of which cost several thousand dollars to put on your shelf. They came up with seven sacraments. Roman Catholic Church, billion people, call themselves Christians. That's the means of grace, is the seven sacraments. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, Hebrews 9.15, that by means of death, that by means of death, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. It's a promise, brethren. It's not an offer. It's a promise. And God that promised eternal life before the world began cannot lie. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us. God promised eternal life, and it's by the means of the death of Christ. And when Jesus died, He said it is finished because it was finished. Because it was by means of death. Verse 16, for where a testament is, that is a last will and testament. That kind of a covenant. For where a testament is of is there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. The testator is the father that writes the will. He must die in order for the will to go into force. It's a document that becomes in force, powerful, legally powerful, after death. That's what it's talking about right here. A, a will. But it's using the word testament. And if you ever looked at a will, it says at the top, the last will and testament. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So what is the one transaction that we are waiting to have happen? What is the one condition that must be met? What is the means that must be fulfilled? What is the instrument of our salvation? The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. By means of death. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Even under Moses, everything was dedicated with blood. And it goes on to describe the sprinkling of the blood and all that he had to do with blood in verses 19, 20, and 21. It says in 22, and almost all things are by the law, purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place once, not into the holy place on earth. He's not an earthly priest. He doesn't die. He's able to live forever. He enters into heaven. He offered Himself without spot to God. And that put into force the everlasting covenant. You are the beneficiaries, the recipients of a last will and testament of Almighty God for everything that He owes. God cannot die. So He sent the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth who did die in His human body, but God raised Him from the dead because He's the God of peace that raised again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make you to do every good thing that is well-pleasing in His sight. Make you. It doesn't sound like Paul believes in free will either, does he? May God of hope that saved you by the blood of the everlasting covenant through Jesus Christ, make you do those things that are pleasing in His sight. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now the God of hope, the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, 
that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Jesus Christ did not come into this world to try to save. God did not come up with a plan to try to save. God came up with the last will and testament. And Jesus Christ put it into force by dying on the cross for us. And the Holy Spirit applies every bit of it to us. The Bible says this, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. First Amen. Peter 1, 2. Right. That is what we believe about salvation. Our salvation is like a will that a man would write to give things to his son upon his death. God cannot die, so he sent Jesus to die for us. Jesus died, then God raised him from the dead, put him at his own right hand. The everlasting covenant went into force. We, when God accepted Jesus, he accepted all of us, because before the foundation of the world, we were assigned to Jesus and put in him, and heaven was prepared for us. That's how we're saved. No, don't let anybody tell you anything else. Right. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.